Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. You may be seated. So there's this apocryphal story, which I've never found fully sourced, but there's a story of a young Union soldier who in the Civil War was part of the Army of the Potomac, and uh, he was of a, a, a family with many brothers, and all the rest of his brothers were killed uh, in battle. And so basically being the only survivor, and back then we didn't have a social security net system for families, he asked his commanding officer if he could go home to take care of his mother, to tend the farm, um, since there were no living and surviving brothers in, uh, in that family. And so when his commanding officer, his commanding officer didn't listen to him, he then went, uh, tried to uh, walk that request up the chain of command, uh, but it didn't work. So then uh, the next time he got leave uh, on a weekend pass, he, went, he was in the Army of the Potomac, so he went down to D.C., and he tried to gain access to the War Department. Um, and was dejected. It just, no one wanted to listen to him or hear his request at the War Department. So he sat down at a park on a little bench and um, with his ha head in his hands. And all of a sudden, a, a young boy came up to him and said, well, why are you crying? He said, well, my brothers have passed away and I'd like to go home on leave for a few months to take care of my family farm and take care of my widowed mother. The young boy well, said, well, come with me. Let's see if we can work this out. So the young boy grabbed him by his hand and walked him towards a, a, a house. And as they approached the gate of this house, uh, the, 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 the fence, um, there were two soldiers standing there. And the, the soldiers just parted ways and let the little boy through. And the, the boy thought it was a bit strange. The, the, the soldiers thought it was a bit strange that, that these two soldiers would let this man into this house on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and then the boy kept walking and... The, the soldier thought, surely this is a fluke. The, the soldiers will stop us when we get to the doors of the White House. So as they approached the doors of the White House, the soldiers parted ways and opened the door for the little boy. And by this point, the soldier was a bit intrigued by what was going on. So the, the, the boy, still holding the soldier's hand, walked him all the way to the Oval Office, knocked on the door and said, Dad, there's someone here to see you. And obviously, Abraham Lincoln said, Todd, bring him on in. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Now, it's interesting. Um, over the next couple of uh, weeks, we are going to be journeying through the book of Romans um, here at St. Peter the Fisherman. So you can look in your bulletins. We're going to be going through Romans 5, 1 through 11. It's printed there. But we're going to look at what that means. And here we, we don't see the word father ever mentioned at all in the text. But that's what this passage is talking to us about, about knowing God as father. Now, it's interesting. Over the, the course of looking at the book of Romans, uh, the book of Romans is structured almost identically to how the book, how the Nicene Creed is structured. And what do I mean by that? Um, the Nicene Creed starts with, we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heavens and earth. And then it goes and says, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And it says, we believe in God, the Holy Spirit. And then we say, we believe in the Holy Church. The book of Romans talks to us about, of the knowledge of God the Father, of the knowledge of God the Son, 
and the next few chapters then say of the knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit, and then the last few chapters of the knowledge of the Holy Church. So that's what we're kind of journeying through. But today, let's look at this thing of, of the knowledge of God the Father. So what does it mean to know the Father and to know his love and to know his joy? In this passage, we find three things about joy. We see immediate joy, we see future joy, and we see ultimate joy. Immediate joy. Here's what I want you to think of. It's in verse 2, it's also in verse 11. And we, we now stand. We now stand. It's a now thing. It's not a some pie-in-the-sky future thing. There's in it. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's rejoicing. There's an immediacy to this joy. And what do I mean by that immediacy? Joy is very different than happiness. You see, happiness has to do with what happens to you versus, and it's, it's, it's not too distant cousin in the English language. Joy is a deep sense of contentment that doesn't depend upon your circumstances. Now, um, if you'd ask me, what did you get for Father's Day? I could tell you I got a new used, well, I got a used car for Father's Day. I wasn't intending on getting that. But um, last, uh, well, this Tuesday I was driving home from work, and all of a sudden I get this light that says, transmission overheating, and poof, after 220,000 miles my transmission gave on that car. Um, if my joy were dependent on external circumstances, then I could be having a really bad day and I'd be a really not fun person to be around. But if you have immediate, the immediacy of the joy, the joy in which we now stand, if you have that, it means that, that nothing can shake your confidence in that. If you know the Father's love, that will carry you through every circumstance. It will give you a deep well and resource for joy that is inexpressible and uncontainable. There's an immediacy we have peace, not we will have, we have. Even verse 11, it says, more than that, we also rejoice in God because we have now received reconciliation. You have now received. There's an immediacy to that. God gives us an immediate joy. John Stott, in his commentary, the famous Anglican preacher and theologian who was the rector of All, Soul, All Souls Langham Place in London, says this, the chief mark of justified believers is joy. You and all, you and I all, if we have a living relationship of love with God the Father, have that joy. I mean, how many people do you meet that they'd look at just sucking on lemons, right? Well, if you know Jesus, you shouldn't be sucking on lemons. You've been reconciled to God the Father. There's an immediacy to that. And here's the other thing. We're, we're going to do a different prayer um, for communion than we normally do. We normally do prayer A. We're doing prayer C, which talks about galaxies and interstellar space, sometimes called the Star Wars prayer. Look, if you think that we're just here because God made the universe and you think of God only as Father in that sense, th then, then there's a throneness. There's, by that I mean there's just like a, a randomness to the universe. Like, you can say we believe in one God. But then you got to take that step further and say, the Father. See, there's a difference between just knowing God as God and knowing God as Father. One, he's a creator. So, yeah, everybody can say God as Father in that sense. But I mean the Father in the sense that he loves his children. That's the, the uniqueness and difference of our faith to, to many other ways of expressing belief in a God out there. There's, there's a familial aspect when we say knowing God as Father. It gives immediate joy. 
but also gives us future joy. What do I mean by that? There's a future joy that, that is this deep reservoir for you. And how can I t- explain this to you? So sometimes it's, it's good to just think of illustrations. And sometimes when, I'm, when I run out of illustrations, I go back and I look at what some old preachers said. So there's a guy uh, 400 years ago. He was a priest over in England. Thomas Goodwin said this. Picture a man uh, walking along the road with his little boy, holding hands, father and son, son and father. The, boy's, the boy knows the man is his father and that his father loves him. But all of a sudden, the man sweeps the boy up in his arms, embraces him and kisses him. Now the boy is actually no more a son than when, he, when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before. The father's action has not changed the status of the son. But oh, the difference in the enjoyment of that status. You see, there's something to know God as father, and there's a whole other thing to know, to know God as father. You can know he's father, he created me, okay, he's got good plans for me, but then there's a whole other thing to be kissed by the Holy Spirit as you're embraced by your father. I mean, that's exactly what Paul tells us here. Hope does not put us to shame, verse 5. Or other translations say, hope does not disappoint, verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God and the Holy Spirit sweeps you in the Father's arms and He kisses you. There is no change in your knowledge of God as Father, but oh, the enjoyment of that status. And that gives you the power and the ability to to go through present hardships. Think about that. Paul says, we rejoice now in our present sufferings. That radically transforms the way that you and I understand a car breaking down by the road. Or if two days later, your other car's battery breaks. Or if the fact that you have all these amazing plans for what you're going to do over Father's Day weekend and your whole beach trip gets rained on or your kids don't call you on Father's Day. Knowing that your Father in Heaven loves you gives you not only an immediate joy, but also a future joy because hope does not disappoint. That's what Paul is telling us. And Paul actually is, you know what, has anyone ever read self-help books, right? How to not worry, how to not be anxious. What do y'all think about them, right? Sometimes we think, oh, they're not the, they're not the products of the devil, they're just the products of idiots. <laughs> You're probably thinking that, right? But what do I mean by that? I, I, okay, so... So Paul's writing this letter kind of in, at least this portion of Romans 5, in response to two Greek thought processes. There's the Stoics, right? The stiff upper lip, you know, bad things happen, just carry on, lads, and smile and keep doing what you got to do, keep trucking on, right? But there's the other, ex- the other extreme, which is not the Stoic idea, but the, 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 the Epicurean, the, the idea of like, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Both of them are telling you how to have immediate and even potentially future joy. But the whole point of the Epicureans, they said, there is no God. And even if there were a God, who cares? And if you are going through pain, don't worry about the pain because two things are going to happen. Either the pain is going to go away, and it's momentary, or if it doesn't go away, it's going to intensify. And then you're going to die and it doesn't matter. So that was the whole point of the whole Epicurean way of eat, drink, and be merry. And Paul says, here's why I part company with both the Stoics and the Epicureans. I want you to know an unshakable inexpressible future joy that you can have now in the present. But how do we get that? 
And that's my last point. There is ultimate joy. There is ultimate joy. What do I mean by ultimate joy? Every joy that we experience in life um, is actually an appetizer. Did you know that? So um, I remember a, a, a few years ago I was driving on the road to London. It's another like car breakdown story. I think it's just fun to do that. Um, and I'm driving and my car broke down. And there was a side on the road that said London, you know, 28 miles. Now, I could have sat there and stared at the sign like, London, because it says it on the sign, right? But it's actually a signpost telling me that 28 miles from now is where London is. And here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about joy. Joy is an appetizer that you and I get to think about. He says, but what in conclusion of joy? For that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. The point naturally is that it, it, it points us to something greater. Look, the whole party gather around and stares. And when we have found that road and all the passing signposts every few miles, we don't stop and stare. They only encourage us, and we should be grateful to the authority that set those signs up. But we will not stop and stare, or at least not much, and not on this road, even though those signposts are made of silver and their lettering of gold. The whole point is that every joy that you and I get, even the joy of being a dad or having a dad, or of sharing family. Those are but little appetizers of the real thing. Just like I don't st say, stay there staring at the signpost for London, I'm expecting to see London itself. The ultimate joy. So how do we get that? And here's how you get it. Because what is that joy? Well, the writer Hebrews tells us about that joy. It says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And what's the joy? When he was looking at the cross, Jesus saw you. Jesus saw me. The whole point of the cross was to get and rescue you. This is what Paul says. He says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Now, here's the thing. Wrath isn't kind of a crankiness. Sometimes we think like wrath and rage being the same thing. And I remember I was doing a, a translation of Homer's Iliad. And, um, and I was with my professor and I said, Oh, rage, rage, God, a sing of the rage of Achilles, the son of the, the son, rage that, that killed a thousand men. And the guy translated and said, why don't you try that again? The word's not rage. I was like, well, it's rage, right? He's like, no, it's wrath. Wrath and rage are very different. Rage is this kind of crankiness, right? This like fly off the handle kind of thing. Wrath is God's intense focus and displeasure towards sin in this world, towards this, the cancer that's eating you and I up, what's destroying our heart. And like a surgeon, he's excising that tumor. Wrath and rage are two completely different things. In fact, here I'll illustrate that for you. Um, wrath in Greek, it has that same word in Greek has a distant, not so distant cousin in the root word. The, wor the word in Greek is orge. And we also have another word in English, orgasm. An intense focus, pleasure. Or dis if orge is displeasure, you can figure out the other one, right? But the whole point, it's intense focus, displeasure towards evil, to what's destroying you. And so the Father wants to rescue us and save us from that. 
Jesus tells a story about a father who had two sons. And this father who has two sons, one of the, the younger son comes to the father and says, Father, um, can I have my inheritance? I, I want to just be free. I think your rules are restrictive. I don't want to be here. Can I have my, my half of the inheritance? I'd like to go live my life. So the father gives him his inheritance, and the son runs away. Now, what you need to realize by that is that in that day and age, when you ask for inheritance, uh, if the father was still living, what you're really telling him is, I wish you were dead. That's what you're saying. So the son runs away to a far-off country, and he takes his whole inheritance and squanders it, and it just wastes it. And after he runs out of money, a great famine comes about, and he has to find work because he's run out of money. And he goes and becomes a pig herder. And as he's tending the pigs, he's eating piggy food. And he says, you know, even the servants, even the servants in my dad's house have food. I will arise and I will go to my father's house. And I will say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me back as a servant. I'll even work for you. Don't even call me your son. I will work hard for you. Just take me back. And so as he's walking back to his dad from that far-off country, he's rehearsing his I'm so sorry speech. But little does he know that no matter, that all the while, his dad, day in and day out, has been on the proverbial front porch of that house, pacing back and forth, waiting for his son to return. And it says in the story in Luke that, that while his son was afar off, the father saw him, and went running towards him. And as he sees him, it says that he fell upon him and kissed his neck. And then he brings his son home, and he says, let's, th we, let's throw a party. We have to celebrate. There's no other recourse, but we have to celebrate. My son who once was dead now is alive. And then all of a sudden, in that story, it says there's two brothers. Another brother pops up, the older brother. And he says, Dad, that guy wasted all your money, all your resources, said, I want you dead. I want you out of here. I stayed here. I worked hard for you. I behaved really well. And not once did you ever throw me a party. Here's the thing. In that story, there is a third, well, there's a fourth character that you don't see. There's actually a true older brother in that story. Because here's the thing. The younger brother runs away from God the Father by being really, really naughty. The older brother runs away from the father by being really, really, really good. They both want the father's goods. They don't actually want the father. They want all of his treasures. They want all of his inheritance. One is going to get to that inheritance by being really bad. The other one's going to get to that inheritance by being really good. One's going to be, you know, get that inheritance by being really dissolute. The other by being very religious and observant. But what we miss in this picture and what's not always seen is that there's a true older brother in that. And what that means is the father has already given away the inheritance. There is half the inheritance is gone. There is no way to bring the brother back unless the older brother gives up his inheritance. So the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus and says, our brother, our captain, our king, the captain of our salvation. Jesus is the true brother who says, Father, if, if, if to have him included, I have to give up my inheritance, I'm willing to do that. There's a, an Episcopal priest and theologian who teaches at Yale by the name of Miroslav Volf. 
And he tells this in his book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he talks about the whole reason why that younger brother can be brought back in is because the older brother is, it says, exclude me if it means that they get to be included. You and I get to come to this table and enjoy the Father's love, His lavish love for us, because our older brother has said, Father, please include them, even if it means that I have to be cut off and on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So today, Lord, we ask that as we come to this, your table, and as we come to a time of prayer ministry, that those of us that need a, a, a touch of your love, not just to know about your love, but to know your love, to not just know you, that you are a father, but that, to know you as a father. We ask that you would speak to us um, in the eternal word and broken bread and through prayers. We ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.